So welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I am your host for this session, Yehuda Genossar from uh, Hadassah Hebrew University Medical Center in Jerusalem. And today we'll be speaking with uh, Paul uh, McConnell, who is the chair of the Ethics Scientific Committee of the European Society of Anesthesia and Intensive Care. And the topic is, are current medical ethics systems still useful in the 21st century. Now, Paul, good, good, good day to you. Lovely to be here. Um, we've been talking for a long time um, in our meetings for the ethics committee that I'm also on about the four pillars, non-maleficence, beneficence, justice, and autonomy. And you've shared with us over the time your thesis on the uh, the future of uh, medical ethics and uh, and how relevant these these four pillars are. So, as these discussions have always been so fascinating, I thought that we should really sort of bring this to a wider audience. So, uh, maybe you can just share some of your concerns and doubts. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I mean, I think if if anyone asks, you know, any medical student or even practicing doctor, tell me about medical ethics they will immediately wrote off the four principles, beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. Um, and that might be a useful starting point, but for many, unfortunately, I feel it's become almost the end point as well. Um, and people don't look critically enough um, at this um, almost like dogma um, and how it actually can, in some ways, almost impede their practice um, rather than rather than enhance it. So, um, what then are the four pillars useful for in terms of uh, um, giving ethical medical care? Are they some? Uh, um, a theoretical nicety, or, or or do they translate into real clinical practice? I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I think um, I don't want to be accused of you know throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. Um, you know, there are some uses for it, um, and I think that they're most useful actually as a language that we can use to describe problems. I think they really fail as a way of actually solving them. I mean, even sort of Beauchamp himself, you know, actually felt that they did not constitute a general ethical theory, but rather a sort of framework of norms. And I think if we're looking at them, the world as it is now, you know, has shown us that there are certain problems with them. You know, there's problems with, well, first of all, the, the fact that the definitions are kind of fuzzy. I mean, you may have a set definition of autonomy. I may have a similar definition of autonomy, but it might be slightly different coming from a, uh, you know, a sort of Scottish perspective versus an Israeli perspective. And that definition of autonomy, again, might be very different from somebody, uh, for say, um, you know, China or, um, you know, the Indian subcontinent. As well as that, there's this idea then that how does 
you know, their four principles work when we're all world citizens? Can we agree on what these definitions are? And are the four principles enough as we move further into the 21st century and start to deal with technologies that the world's never really encountered before? Yeah. So um, in I was reading through your thesis and um, some interesting uh, um, exponents of this um, idea of global um, or, or critics of the idea of global um, um, principalism, uh, as this called, the people who rely on the four principles, who even have referred to this as um, the imposition of Western moral imperialism, trying to take what is seen as four principles that may um, apply to, to Western culture and imposing them on cultures which are, are very different. Um, and certainly even within Europe, Northern and Southern Europe have different attitudes when it comes to um, euthanasia, end-of-life practice, start-of-life practice, and so forth. Um, how do you then take such a uh, disparate world and try to fit them into one cookie-counter um, um, universal principle of ethics? I mean, again, you know, that, that's probably the real sort of nub of the problem. You know, so maybe the first question that, that we should be asking ourselves is, you know, not just are the four principles, you know, suitable for medical ethics in the 21st century, but can we have a universal medical ethics, um, you know, in the 21st century? Is universalization possible? Let's just focus on some of these four pillars for the moment. Um, I think that non-maleficence or do try to avoid doing anything wrong, doing bad, and beneficence doing good is relatively non-controversial, and I don't think that there is a um, major contradiction between them. Um, but if we look at justice and autonomy, there is clearly a very big area of tension between these two, almost to the extent that you're going to, in many different cl clinical scenarios, be choosing which do you prefer, patient's individual autonomy? Is this a libertarian charter for individuals to, um, in the current context, maybe be anti-vaxxers or um, avoid a mask mandate? Um, um, or are we going to um, uh, reduce patients' autonomy in the, for the greater good of society, which will be in the interests of justice? This comes up in multiple things around the COVID epidemic, whether it be the allocation of scarce resources in an ICU or the allocation of vaccines and avoiding vaccine nationalism and so forth. Clearly, there is tension between these two. Yeah. I mean, even if you actually look at something like beneficence and non-maleficence, now, we'd like to think that non-maleficence is a, is a sort of classic. I mean, it get, can trace its way back 
um, you know, to the Hippocratic um, oath, this idea of first doing no harm. But even there, we can maybe see a slight tension if we're trying to universalize this um, by asking what constitutes harm and what doesn't constitute harm. Um, take something you mentioned, euthanasia there. You know, so some uh, societies may view euthanasia as the ultimate harm, whereas other societies might actually view the opportunity for somebody to end their life um, when they wish to do so if their suffering is otherwise interminable um, uh, uh, as a benefit. Okay, So even something like that, though across sort of Western lines we're more sort of clear as to what um, beneficence and non-maleficence is, there can be some difference there. I think you're really right with the nub of the problem, though, when we look at, um, you know, sort of globalised ethics here, there is this almost, is dichotomy the right word, or almost like conflict between autonomy um, and justice, you know? How do we actually sort of uh, square this circle? Because they do seem quite disparate. Now, um, this is one of the big problems with, I think, the four principles, because you've got these two almost like competing factors here that have been listed and their, their principles are pillars. So they should carry the same importance. But when it comes down to individual situations, you're going to have to weigh them differently. So we know there's been quite a lot of work done and some papers done where they've looked at something as simple as delivering bad news um, in places like Hong Kong. Um, and they've found that in those papers that um, physicians are more likely to deliver bad news to family members um, than they are to the individual to allow the family member to deliver that bad news because that is more in keeping with the way that that sort of society um, the sort of communitarian role of that society sort of functions. Whereas for some of us in the West, we would view that as a huge interference with the patient's own autonomy. That news is theirs. It should be go to them first. And then we have to wonder then, how do we sort of resolve this? Well, that means then we have to look at autonomy in sort of one in, in of five ways. And this is you know, been highlighted by other philosophers in the past, this idea that, well, do we resolve this problem by saying that autonomy is not fundamental? Um, or do we resolve this problem by saying, well, actually, yeah, the individual is the most important? Or do we resolve this problem by saying that it's the communal part that is most important? Or are both equally important? Or is it case dependent? And unless we come up with this idea that individual consent is the most important, we've essentially rendered one of our four pillars lame. You know, and a table might work very well with four legs, but it can be a bit shaky when you pull one of those legs away. So what alternatives to the at least one of those pillars do you see? I, I know that in your paper you were talking about work from Martha Nussbaum and some of the um, virtues that that she was... Uh, eliciting as alternatives or, or at least maybe additions to these four principles. Do you want to uh, briefly um, uh, highlight those? Yeah, 
Well, I mean, I think what we need to do then is is go down first of all and ask, you know, who makes a good ethical system? What do we need from our ethical systems? So if that's the case, we need something that is protective and we also need something that's enhancing. So what do I mean by protective? So for something to be protective, it's got to be able to identify a problem, describe that problem, evaluate that problem, and most importantly, and this is where the four principles I feel really falls down, offer a solution. Because so often with the four principles, we can identify the problem. That's why it's a useful language for us to use. But we're then left at the end of it with our hands up in the air going, I don't know what's more important here. Is it justice or is it autonomy? The other thing that we can think of then is it's got to be enhancing, you know, because these things shouldn't be static, okay? They've got to offer a mechanism that where it suggests and allows for improvement. Okay. So if the four principles aren't up to scratch, what else could we use? Well, we could go back to sort of more traditional things. We could look at something like deontology, you know, like Immanuel Kant had, had suggested. Um, I mean, Kant talked about the golden rule, you know, um, which has been there from such times as Confucius, you know, this idea of doing unto others as you would want done unto you. And that seems like a, a reasonable bit, but that's essentially still enforcing your views on other people. And deontology is really inflexible. You know, it, it essentially says things are right because they're right. Okay. And that's not what we need within an ethical system that is going to be used universally. A sort of universal system needs a degree of plurality, but also to be a, a set definitive limits within that. So deontology is probably too rigid. We could go down a utilitarian bent, you know, this is our liberalism, okay? But you run very much the risk of a sort of tyranny of the masses there. You know, the people that are most vulnerable then don't get necessarily get the help that they need or get marginalised. The usefulness about those systems is though that they do tell you what to do albeit it might not be the right thing necessarily to do because of their almost extreme polarity. Now, we mentioned virtues, and it's interesting that virtues were sort of excluded um, from um, the principles. So there are some things um, where people have proposed a more sort of virtuous approach. That would be looking at solidarity, which sort of frames your justice within a more local communitarian context, dignity, and we always hear about the patient's dignity being most important, and prudence, this idea of um, uh, us doing things in such a, a, a way that we, we don't disadvantage people, we take caution in that. But that still runs into the same problems. So I think... You mentioned Martha Nosbaum, and this could be a whole uh, talk in ourselves. I think what we need to look at is a capabilities approach. And a capabilities approach is one where minimum standards are set, but people are allowed to reach those standards in their own way. 
okay? Um, they're sort of, it's almost like a liberal protectionism where you're allowed um, to make your own choices within that, but there are set limits on what will and will not work. Where the four principles would come in, I think is giving us the language to allow us to identify those problems. Paul, Paul. thank you very much. It's clear that Hippocrates, um, writing more than two millennia ago, has still sort of been the standard bearer for much. And the four pillars from maybe 40 years ago mm -hmm. or thereabouts um, uh, may not stand the same test of time as the Hippocratic uh, um, um, Oath. But um, it, it is almost certain that despite the uh, need for moral relativism and being pluralistic in our outlook, some lines in the sand will need to be drawn. Um, one of your uh, uh, lines in your thesis was that Macklin pointed out that if ethics were only relative to time, place and culture, then there may be some excuse for the atrocities that the Nazis performed in, in, in the war. Um, so clearly lines need to be drawn in the sand. It's not just um, um, the ethics of their, or the, the, uh, the cultural and uh, location, but other, the lines clearly need to be drawn. And this may um, give some sort of promo into our next podcast, which we'll be hoping to do on 75 years from the um, um, Nazi um, doctor's trials in Nuremberg at the end of the Second World War. Paul, thank you very much for, for, for this fascinating talk. And thanking everyone also for listening to this episode. The uh, European Society of Anesthesia and Intensive Care releases monthly podcasts on the ESAIC website and various streaming platforms. And we will hope that you join us for the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs>